right, so tonight we are in Revelation and uh, chapter 12. As we continue going through this book, we've pretty much tonight um, come to the halfway point. Uh, the first half that we saw, the first 11 chapters, provided us with a general view of human history overall. It displayed in both visions of, of seven seals and the seven trumpets, we saw repeated this story of human history, right? We saw the idea of judgments poured out on those who are unwilling to repent and trust God. Um, we saw that the world is in opposition to the gospel. We saw that the world is in opposition to Christ himself. And uh, so we, we kept, kept seeing that tug of war. We also saw that the persecution doesn't just fall upon the wicked, but the wicked also react against God's word and persecute his people. So God's people in this world are also suffering uh, during this time. But we also saw the theme constantly repeated that the best is yet to come for the believer, that it doesn't matter what happens in this life, how much we suffer, Christ has us in his hands. He is the angel. He's the one standing in the midst of the candlesticks with the angels in his hands, uh, representing the messengers of the churches. So that was the promise given us over and over that we will persevere in the Lamb who is victorious. Now, this second half of Revelation begins to home in on some of the chief characters uh, that are in this spiritual warfare. So the first half kind of gives a big general view of what's happening on earth, and we saw you know, wars and famines and, and pestilence and uh, tribulations, um, uh, martyrs dying for the faith, all of those things, and yet Christ still assuring his church, be faithful, keep standing, the best is yet to come. Now we're going to kind of home in on some of those characters that are behind the scenes and get a close-up look at some of them. Um, so the primary enemy that we're going to see over the next, uh, from chapter 12 on through to chapter 15, is basically going to be Satan, who is the dragon. We're going to see that tonight. Um, he's aided by two beasts, uh, the heart of the Babylon and the people who bear the mark of the beast. And yet, one by one, these figures that we're being introduced to in chapters 12 through 15 will be defeated in chapters 16 through 20. So that's kind of a big picture of us as we're going forward, kind of think about what we're seeing in, in this narrative. But today, we will look at the two first characters that we're introduced to, and that's the woman and the dragon. The woman and the dragon. So let's look at verse 1 of chapter 12. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony uh, of giving birth. So this is our first picture, and, and there's a lot of speculation, obviously, about this sign. Now, I think it's important that we look at that word, because we understand already through the book of Revelation that there's a lot of symbolic stuff happening, right? And so some would take these things totally literally, but then others we have to understand, see, I think I agree with the camp that would say a lot of this is a symbol, as we've already seen throughout the first 11, 11 chapters. So having said that, some would say that this woman picture here is Mary, the, the, the mother of Jesus, okay? Um, now there's some, some problems with that, but some would say, okay, we see this mother of Mary with a son, right? Uh, 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 she's clothed with the radiance of the sun. The moon is under her feet, and the feet and the, the, the stars are, are around her head in this crown. Now, 
the picture of the radiance shows this splendor of power, but also the, the, the moon under the feet is a picture of dominance, is a picture of conquering, right? So, and the stars, right? This, this, these 12 stars, what are those? So I think even the symbology that's given to this woman betrays it being Mary. I don't think it's Mary. Um, Mary was a, 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 a little teenage girl from, from a small town, right? She had, she, yes, she was chosen by God to be the instrument by which Christ the Messiah was born in human flesh. And that's amazing. But never does the Bible ever give her any kind of other splendor like this. It's never a description that she is somehow above uh, the rest of humanity. Uh, like this picture of whoever this woman is, there is some dominating truth about this person, they, they are about this figure, whatever this represents. Uh, these, these 12 stars. So let's look at it that way. Let's look at some of the things that that would represent to a Jewish reader, uh, a believer who was, was saved back in the first century, receiving the book of Revelation. What are they going to think about when they see some of this symbology of this woman who is pregnant and uh, uh, has all of these, th these pictures? Well, I, I believe, for, for, for one thing, we have to look at that first word that said sign. John said a great sign appeared in heaven. So right there, John is telling us this is not a literal woman. This is a sign or a symbol. It's a vision. So it's meant to portray something, but not be taken, taken literal. So it, it depicts something. In the Old Testament, what are the 12 tribes of Israel, right? There's 12 of them, right? 12 tribes of Israel. And so I'm going to hint, I'm going to move toward where I think this is. I believe it's a picture of basically the woman here represents the people of God in the Old Testament. The 12 tribes, right, would pick the 12 stars, would picture those 12 tribes in the Old Testament. And, and in the Old Testament, God promised that through the nation of Israel, the Messiah would be born. So now you see this, I believe the symbology is with that, the idea that in, in, in this way, this woman depicts Israel as the spiritual mother from whence Christ was born. That was the promise that God made to Abraham. From you, Abraham, all nations of the world will ultimately, ultimately be blessed. And from your son, Isaac, who will come from your flesh, will come a multitude that you can't even number, as we saw Sunday when he said, look at the stars, and you're, we can't number the stars. That is a picture of, of spiritual Israel, all of those that will be coming into to the family of, quote, Abraham through the, through the centuries, through, through, through the, the millennia, who will be coming in by faith, as we learn through Romans, that you're, you're a son of Abraham, not by being born a Jewish person, but by faith in Christ. So I'm going to connect all of this with this picture, because I believe, again, that this picture is best seen as representing Israel itself as the people of God, which through them comes the promised son, this child that she is, 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 is pregnant with. I think Douglas Kelly gives a pretty good summation here. He says, Old Testament Israel was pregnant with Christ for thousands of years. Israel was being used as the womb from which the Messiah would be born. So, just as Israelites were the Old Testament people of God, so the church is made up of the New Testament people of God, I believe. So I think that's, that's what we have to remember. And, and I think when you think about all of the things we see throughout the Old Testament, all of the, 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 the evil done toward the nation of Israel, the enemy trying to wipe out this whole line of, of the progeny of, of the Messiah, 
through the Jewish people, and yet God sovereignly keeping them secure and watching that his son is born as promised. So I think, again, this picture of, of Old Testament Israel being the church in the wilderness, as some have called her, is a type, the Old Testament type, of the New Testament people of God known as the church. I believe myself that they morph into the same thing, that the old people, the Old Testament church, are the Old Testament people of God that wandered through the wilderness, are none other than the New Testament people of God, those who believe by faith in Christ as well. And, and I think Paul talked about this. This is the whole point of what we would use the term spiritual Israel. What, what is spiritual Israel that Paul talks about? I just want to take some time to set this up. So if we go back to Romans 9, uh, verses 6 through 8, look what Paul says. He says, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. That's a strange topic. Not all who are descendants from Israel are actual Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. So that's odd. Just because they are physically born in the lineage of Abraham, ethnic Jewish people, doesn't mean that they're actually Israel or a part of that promise. But what's it say? It says, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So, so again, if you put all this together, he's saying that, uh, that the children of Abraham, because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named was the prophecy given, right? He said, okay, through your son Isaac will your offspring be named. But look, Paul answers that. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of, of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. So we have this language here of the promise and the law. You have the, the Mount Sinai, the law given, right? And, and you also have, by the way, gosh, there's so much in this. This is a whole other sermon, but I just want to kind of give a background for this. You have, you have the, the, the child that Sarah and Abraham tried to have in their own flesh when God promised them a descendant, and they took the handmaid of Sarah, remember? And they, they had a son, Ishmael, from, from her, God says, that's not the seed. That's the wrong seed. You're going to have your own. I promised you that Sarah would have your child, your offspring. And so Isaac then was born. And that's the seed of promise, not the seed of the flesh, which they tried in their own flesh to bring, but the seed of promise that God provided. So that's important to understand that. Now, having said that, I'm going to read one more verse, then we're going to get back to Revelation. Galatians 3, 7 through 9 kind of pick up on this same theme of who is the real offspring of Abraham? Who is the real recipients of the promise of the covenant that God made with Abraham? That I will have a people, they will be redeemed by my Messiah, and, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Who is that? Galatians 3, 7 through 9. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, and you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So I think it's pretty plain there what Paul's saying. That, that who is it that is the recipient of the promise made to Abraham? Is it just ethnic Jewish people? No, it's anybody, Gentile or Jew, who has faith in the Messiah, Jesus Christ, and his redemptive work. That's how we become recipients of the covenant of God's grace. Hope that made sense. Let's keep going, though. I believe, what I, what, so what I'm saying here in this, this picture of this woman, this woman pictures prophetic Israel 
who is giving birth to the Messiah. That was God's plan through you, Israel, will come my Messiah. Now, having said that, we've got that set up. God, that's, that's what God is determined to do, to bring his Messiah through Israel. But now you've got in Revelation 12, 3, another character introduced, and, it's, and it says this. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. So, again, a sign, so we know this is symbolic. The, the dragon, seven heads, ten horns, and these diadems on every head, seven crowns, if, if you will. This is a picture, and we're going to see this next week as we go a little more into detail, but we're going to see that verse 9 of chapter uh, 12 tells us that this dragon is none other than Satan, the devil, the deceiver of the nation. So we understand that that is who this is. We don't have to go into great speculation because the Bible itself tells us who this is. But what I want to key in on this week as we kind of look at the symbology of this, first and foremost, the devil is real. There are, there are a lot of people today who, who discount this, even in Christianity. They, they talk about, well, this is just a metaphor. There is no real devil. It's just a, a metaphor. But the Bible is plain. The apostles were plain. Jesus was plain. The, the visions here of John are real. There is a real devil. And, and, and this describes him a little bit to us. Think about this, the many heads, right? In mythology, the many-headed dragon seemed impossible to kill because it would always spring up another head, right? You'd strike one head, and, and then this head would pop up, and then you'd strike off that head, another head would attack you. And so that is, that's a great picture, by the way, of our enemy, Satan, because, I mean, just the time you get one sin confessed and kind of turned from, boom, something else, another temptation pops up, and now we're battling on this front. We battle that, boom, another battle. Isn't that what the Bible says in the New Testament, when it says that the devil is like a roaring lion, he's roaming about seeking whom he may what? Devour. So this is, just as, this is what the Bible keeps warning us about as Christians, to be ready, to be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, is seeking to devour us. And it's just like the many-headed dragon. It's, the, the attacks will be endless in this life, so that's why we must constantly be putting on the armor of God, as it says in Ephesians, goes on to say. And what is that armor of God? Bottom line, folks, it's not so much these things on the outside that we gird up our, our loins with and our shield and we run out in the world and start picking a fight with the devil. I'm telling you, folks, it, that's flesh, right? We're not trying to somehow outsmart him in the flesh. That All of that armor simply talks about running to Christ who is our armor. He's the word. He's the shield. He's the sword. It's all Christ. And we rest in Christ. And we put all of that on in what? Prayer, it says. So this is not Ephesians. Get back to Revelation. I know. Here we go. Back. Back to this. So the idea here is we see this many-headed creature showing, again, the many ways he attacks. But that also has, there's diadems on them with, with horns as well. So horns are usually a picture of strength in these visions, like Daniel's vision, these creatures with horns. It's a picture of power, a picture of strength. So obviously, the devil does have strength. The devil does have power. The devil can appear as an angel of light, the Bible says. He will work many signs and wonders to try to deceive the very elect if he can. And, and so we understand, again, in our own strength, we are, we are no match for the 
enemy, this enemy. It's funny, I think about Billy Sunday, the great evangelist. Many have heard about Billy Sunday. He was a former uh, baseball player and boxer. And he used to get on stage when he would preach. And he would actually start jumping around the stage like this, right? And he would talk about Slewfoot. And he would just almost dare the devil to show up because he was going to knock him out. And I'm thinking, man, if Satan ever showed up, there'd be a little burnt spot on the ground where, where the devil wiped him out. Because, folks, we are no match, as I said, in our flesh. We, do, we don't approach it in that mindset. We approach it in humbly withstanding the devil by standing in Christ. That's it. We stand faithful in Christ. He is too powerful in, in, in his own, uh, for us to, in our own strength to try to fight. So he's got these horns which show power. But also those diadems, right? Those are crowns. Now people think, well, wait a minute, the devil really has no authority. But we forget that when he was cast out of heaven, he was given authority over these earthly kingdoms. And, and when you, this is exactly what Ephesians 2, 2 meant when Paul said, guys, we aren't wrestling against flesh and blood. This is not an enemy like us. It's the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So this is a real force. It's a spiritual principality that Satan is the head of. So that's the picture here. No, no question. So I think we understand this. We've got the woman who represents, I believe, the church of the Old and New Testament, and ultimately that picture of the promised Messiah, especially in that form of the 12 tribes of Israel in the Old Testament, and it's that God has given the promise to Israel whereby the Messiah will ultimately come. We've got the enemy. What does this devil, this serpent, what's his obsession? Well, that's introduced to us in verse 4. He has an obsession, and here it is, verse 4. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven, which, by the way, is another hint. If we look at other places of Scripture that explain the fall of Lucifer, taking a third of the angels with him, that's a picture of this. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth, and the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. Now that is the obsession of the dragon to destroy the seed of the woman. Now that has been going on since Genesis 3.14. I mean, this, this prophecy that that would be the obsession of, the, of Satan, of the serpent, of the dragon, that he would have enmity with the seed of the woman, Obviously, that's from Genesis chapter 3, 14 through 15, back in the very beginning when it all started. I want to read verses 14 and 15 to remind us. This is after, of course, Eve partook of the fruit, Adam partook of the fruit, God came and found them hiding. What did you do? With, you know, this, this, the woman. <laughs> and, okay, what are you doing? Well, it was the serpent. And so God says to the serpent here in verse 14, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman. Which is exactly the language used in Revelation, right? The woman and the dragon. And between your offspring and her offspring. He, 
the ultimate one of her offspring, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And of course, the symbology there is the head wound is a mortal wound. If you have a head wound, you're dying. If you get cut in your heel, I think you'll live. And that's the picture. Jesus, the wound that, that Satan gave Christ on the cross, or not Satan, but the wound that he took for our sins, ultimately was, a, was just a heel wound, right? I mean, he, he rose again. But Satan was mortally, finally, once for all, defeated by Christ's death on the cross. That's what this is prophesying. So ever since this time that this prophecy rang out in Genesis 3, Satan has sought to devour Christ and his offspring. This is just an obsession with Satan. And I think it's interesting. There are so many things we can, we can point out there. I know, again, this goes back to the modern uh, progressive a theologian who denies that Satan is real and this whole thing is false. And they'll even use Genesis there to joke about, well, why would, why would God say he cursed the serpent and make him crawl around? All snakes crawl around. Of course that's what they do. That's ridiculous. And the idea there is, folks, they didn't before God cursed them. That's the whole point. And isn't it strange when you think about these, this creation story about here's Eve in this beautiful garden. She, was never, she never thought it was strange that a serpent could talk. She actually talked to the serpent. Folks, we don't understand how amazing creation was before the fall. That's one thing. We just, we're, not, we're never going to comprehend the perfection of creation before the fall. We're never going to understand the great intricacy of, of animals and things that were made. But most would believe, obviously, based on this, if we believe the Bible, we've got to say there's something about that serpent that was beautiful that was not frightening because, folks, let's face it, you talk about women today talking to snakes, that's not going together, right? Most women do not sit around and talk to snakes. When a snake slithers up, the woman slithers out, right? Gone, don't even, you run. It's just not natural. But what's happening in the Bible, without a question, is there's this woman with, with actually an attraction for the serpent. I mean, he, she's not afraid of him at all. And he's speaking, and she thinks that's fine. So obviously, a serpent walked and could communicate. That's amazing. And this is the curse because God said, no, no, no. From now on, you're cursed. You're going to strike fear into people's hearts. Nobody's going to be around. You're going to crawl on your belly and eat the dust from now on. So there's where we're trying to take our knowledge of current things after the fall and the state of mankind after the fall and apply it back to what we're reading in the Bible. We can't do that. We got to take the Bible as the fact and then adjust our thinking to it. Does that make sense? So, so the word of God shows us without a question that from the very beginning, there was this enmity between Satan and the seed of the woman because he knew the promise. So he doesn't want his head crushed in, so he's going to do everything he can to destroy the seed of Christ. If you look at this, we, we, see, we see this in Revelation 12, 17, which we'll get at next week. I just want to read it along with this because it points it out so well. The dragon became furious. Again, what does Revelation do? It keeps repeating the same truth for us, right? It's telling the whole story once and again, one, again and again. So in verse 17, it's going to repeat this whole theme. Then, then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. And those who keep the commandments. That's who the offspring is. I think there's so much we got to get in this because this explains exactly what we saw 
in our opening verse about why I think the woman represents the Old Testament people of God, the Israelite people who then also represent us today, God's offspring. And as you see here, this was Satan's target. Who are the rest of her offspring? Those who keep the commands of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So, so this is Satan's target. The woman, her offspring, and all who would keep the commands of God, which, which that, that is, that's who he's going to constantly attack. So there's where we're at, and this again is what Revelation has been showing us over and over, that God is trying to encourage us, who are the offspring of the woman, and us, who are the, the offspring of Christ the Messiah, saved by his grace, we are keeping the commands of God. We're trying to serve him faithfully in a world that is against us. The, the dragon is still flailing around, angry at the people of God and trying to persecute. And what does the Bible say in Revelation? It says, hang on, keep on persevering, keep on keeping on. I've got you. I know what's happening. I've got you right there for this purpose. And the best is yet to come. That's, that's the message. And here, here, we see it here in verse 5. Here's the glorious truth in verse 5. And it is glorious how this vision is set up. We see this picture of the woman. She's in childbirth. She's struggling, but she's got an enemy, a dragon. She's right there waiting to devour that child when it comes. And it looks bad. Is it going to happen? It looks, it looks bleak. Will the child be born? Will the woman be destroyed? Ah, the sovereignty of God. Verse 5. She gave birth to a male child. Victory. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Again, our language translation from Greek to English is a little jumpy, and it, it seems like, wow, what, this story is just so fast. All this is simply telling us is the whole story of Christ. It pictures his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, and his glorious ascension to the Father. That's what that verse is showing. It's just simply saying everything God planned in redemptive history has come to pass. And the Lamb of God is victorious. And he is already ascended. I mean, this is the glorious truth of, of the battle is over, folks. The victory has been won. This, this is reminiscent of Isaiah 9, 6, which, which is another messianic prophecy of that child. What's it say? For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. Stop there. We've heard that all of our lives, right? We're entering the Christmas season right now. We hear this verse read all the time, right? We sing songs about it. For, for unto us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. That's the prophecy of Isaiah. Talking about Christ, yes, but I, wanna, I wonder if you've ever thought about the eternal truth in these verses. Notice what it says. It didn't say a son was born. It said, for unto us a child is born. That simply means there was a human being that was born at a particular state, at, uh, in, in a particular moment in time. That means that child, that human child, had a beginning. The human child was born. But we all believe that Jesus, as the Son of God, is eternal. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. Three in one. The doctrine is so beautifully defined here. I just want to show us how the Holy Spirit is so intricate in words, how important they are. 
the child was born. Humanity, the, the human flesh, the incarnation, that happened at a point in time. But look what it says. He didn't, he didn't begin to be the son. He was always the son. Because unto us a child came into existence, but a son was given. The son was given. The son was already in existence. God became flesh and dwelt among us, John tells us. Whew, okay, just want to point that out. I like it. I like it. It's good stuff. Any Mormon friends come to see your Jehovah's Witness? This is where we go. But look at this. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He shall rule with an iron rod. This is, this is the fulfillment of, of who Christ is. So that's exactly what Revelation is talking about. That's our glorious truth, right? Now what happens next? What happens next? Okay. John sees the vision of the whole situation. God has promised to send his Messiah through the people of Israel, but the dragon hates that. He is going to try to stop that. He's going to try to devour this child. But guess what? Child is born. Not only is the child born, the child triumphs over all. And he ascends into heaven. Then what happens? We're not done. Look at verse 6. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Again, symbolism. We've talked about the 1,260 days represents what? 42 weeks or three and a half years. All through Revelation, those are pictures of time, a time, a, lim a limited time of persecution. That's what it's saying. So that's what whoever the woman represents has now fled into the wilderness. So they've, this is us. This is the church. This is what I believe. I believe that this is a symbol of, of the church. At this point, we're in the wilderness that has been prepared by God. That's another, man, we're going to preach a lot here on this in a moment in which she is to be nourished. So there's, there's so much here, and there's so much application for us. So for one thing, this is natural. We've got, a, we've got a, a devil. We've got this dragon who is beside himself. He is failing. He's already conquered, by the way. But we're still here because of God's providential plan. We're still in the wilderness. We're not home yet. We're pilgrims, right? Strangers. And the enemy is still here. So yes, there's persecution. We've been placed in this wilderness. Just like after Jesus' baptism. When Jesus was baptized, the first thing the Spirit did right after his baptism, when he came out, out of the water, was led him into the wilderness for temptation, right? And, and how could we as believers think any different about us and say somehow that well, now that I'm a Christian, I should never suffer. Now that I'm a Christian, everything should go my way. No, the Bible never says that. We see a pattern that's different than that. Those who have followed Christ and trusted Christ have now become the number one enemy of the prince of, of, of the air and the principalities of this world. And so now what we see this picture in Revelation is the woman or the church, his bride, that's what the church is, right? We are the bride of Christ, is now led into the wilderness where, yes, we suffer, but we're also nourished at the same time. God nourishes his people. He gives us the grace. He gives us the strength 
Just like Kim prayed in that prayer. That prayer, it blows a lot of charismatic people's minds sometimes when they hear you're praying for healing for someone. And instead of praying, Lord, take all their pain away. Don't let, don't, don't, don't let them suffer at all and, and heal them right now. That's what we're asking. When we pray, Lord, let them suffer well, they say, huh? Let them suffer? Let them suffer well? But no, that's what we believe as Christians, that God allows us to stay in this world for his purpose, for his ultimate glory. And there's no greater glory that we show that we are true believers in God's grace than when we are suffering and the world looks at us and sees grace and they see joy and they see a peace, even in the midst of our pain, even in the midst of our brokenness, and even in the midst of our doubt, we can still say, though he slay me, like Job said, though he slays me, yet will I trust him. That gives God ultimate glory much more so than a Christian driving their new BMW in their brand new house with their new suit saying, God's blessed me. I love the Lord. He's good to me. Yeah, I'm sure he is. How much glory does God get there? You see my point? All right, we've got to get back to this. Here's the three applications I want to make from this, and then we're through. So hang in there. There's three applications from all that we've studied, especially a couple of them that I want to make on this last verse talking about the church that is left in the wilderness. The enemy is still here, but let's, there's many things that we get from this whole chapter we got to apply here at the end. Number one, Christians must not think of this present world as home. It's not home, but rather as a wilderness journey. Just, and again, the Bible repeats the same theme over and over as well. The children of Israel of the Old Testament representing believers. They're in slavery to sin. Egypt, Pharaoh, represent the evil one we're enslaved to to that sin we can't break out on our own but god moses is a picture of christ to deliver they're de they're delivered by the power of god through the ten plagues and all that he did miraculously to free his people and where do they go they're led through the wilderness right relying on god day by day relying on the manna day by day but yet there's that picture right but they're not home yet. They're waiting to get to the promised land. This is all a metaphor. This is what Revelation's metaphor is for us. Hey, Christian, you're not home yet. This is a wilderness for you. So don't put down your tent stakes too deep. Store, don't store up your treasures on earth, Jesus said, where moth and rust corrupt and thieves break through and steal, but store up for yourself treasures in heaven. Keep looking to your heavenly home, realizing this is just temporary. It's a time for testing and a time for trouble because that's what Jesus told us. What did he say? In the world you will have trouble. But take heart. I've overcome the world. Do you see the tension that's always there for the believer? We're going to have trouble. We're going to suffer. But we know that he is victorious ultimately and nothing can take that away from us. So John 15, 19, what does it say? If you were of the world... The world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So again, contrary to the prosperity gospel and other teachings that say it's all going to be a bed of roses if you're a Christian, the opposite is true. The world hates us. This world system run by the principality of this world who hates God, he's going to hate the seed the offspring of God. 
So we just got to get used to that. Elections don't go our way. What do you know? Welcome to the Christian life. What I'm saying is that's the problem. We've got, man, I really am rambling tonight. Um, the moral majority was a great idea. Started back in the 70s, 80s. You know, Jerry Falwell, the great idea. Hey, let's moralize the whole world. Christians take over government. Let's, let's vote in the right people. It sounds really great. But it's almost like a people trying to make this world their home. When we were never called to make it our home, we're called to stand for Christ in the midst of a place that is our enemy. Literally, they do not like us. And there's really no way for us to fit in because when we start fitting in to a place that is contrary to God's morals and hates him, and and if we start fitting in and feeling comfortable and they feel comfortable with us, there's something wrong. There's something wrong. And the thing that's wrong is we've stopped being the people of God and become people of the world. So this is why this helps us to see what Revelation teaches us. It's just telling us here in this vision, folks, you're in a wilderness and don't forget that. It's not your home. Ephesians 6 to 12, it says this. And again, this just shows us again that... Um, We're not wrestling against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. All of that is in this world. So we're not home. That's who we're battling against, but God is nourishing us. He's nourishing us. And that's that's where we see number two, the second point. God prepared a place for this woman to flee. The wilderness, he prepared that for her. He sent her there. That, again, that limited number of days that, that they were su- will suffer, a number being placed on it shows the sovereignty of God. It shows us hope. It says, don't worry. It's not just, it's just out of, it's, this is not out of God's control. The world is not going to have the upper hand. The dragon's not going to win. I've limited the days. It's for my purpose that you're suffering. I have a reason for this. Trust me. And again, notice the wilderness is the place where God leads us and where he nourishes us. Don't ever forget that. Number three, and we're, the alarm went off, that my alarm to quit preaching, I guess. But number three, here's the best part. Remember the enemy is defeated. We forget that. That's pretty easy to forget in the foxhole. I know when the, when the bombs are landing, it's hard to remember. Wait a minute, this is a defeated enemy. But nonetheless, that's what Revelation keeps telling us. The enemy has been defeated. The child has come. The child has conquered. And the child is coming again as king of kings and lord of lords. That's done. That's what Revelation shows us. That's settled. So for for, for us, it's, it's like when the allies won in the European theater. Remember D Day. D Day. When we hit the beaches of Normandy, the war was basically over. That was the final crushing blow to the German war machine. Most of the generals knew that in the German armies. Most of them, after those first few weeks after that successful landing, were already campaigning for an early uh, um, you know, surrender and begin the, the talks. And yet, what happened? That war went on for months. And yet... There were bloody battles for, for months. But it was a, a, a different feeling for the allies who realized, wait a minute, we, we, we have broke the neck here. All we're doing is pushing back. We're on their turf. We're in their land. We're just, all we got to do is clean up, push through. Because 
victory is ours. And it's, it's a lot different when you're fighting like that, when you're in a battle, but you realize, wait a minute, we've already defeated. We've already taken over their strongholds. We're already here. We're marching right down their throat. We'll be in Berlin soon. You, you see, that's what the revelation is for us. It's reminding us, the soldiers on the ground, hey, wait, wait, the, your commander and captain has already defeated and done the final death blow. Just keep mopping up. It's, it's almost the coming, my coming is at the doors. Keep on keeping on. The best is yet to come because the lamb has conquered. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We pray, God, that you let us faithfully fight daily for the glory of our king knowing that the child has come and he's conquered and he is risen and he has ascended and he is the ruling king and he is coming again to finally and ultimately destroy evil satan the enemy once and for all and to establish a new heaven and a new earth where we will rule and reign with him forever. And Father, we know that we can only believe this by the grace of your faith that you give us. And so we pray for that tonight, Father. We say with the apostle, we believe, help thou mine unbelief. And we thank you that you're faithful to do that. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.